good morning. This feels like one of those mornings where everybody else has brought the ball all the way down to the one-yard line, and all I really need to do is just kind of fall forward over the goal line. Those songs and that prayer, just so mindful already of how God is manifesting to us his presence. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. My name is Ryan Chase. I'm another one of the pastors here. Just affected by the words that song we sang, all the waiting will be over. Greg repeated these as well. Every sorrow will be healed. All the dreams it seemed could never be will all be real, and you'll gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. We often use that word dream as an adjective to describe our ideal vision of the future, right? We speak of dream jobs. What would your dream job be? Not the one right now where you just you have it because it, it pays the bills, but your dream job. We, we talk about dream vacations. If you could go anywhere and money was not an issue and you could stay there as long as you wanted, and you could pick the time of year and who was there with you, what would your dream vacation be? We talk about dream homes, just custom designed for you and your family. If, if you close your eyes and you... Imagine your dream world, perfect place of perfect peace and pleasure, a state of unending happiness. What would you envision? What would be there? What would not be there? What would that world be like? I once saw a poster, I won't say where, it said something to this effect. Across the top it said, heaven catches your attention. And then underneath it had listed all these attributes. It said things like perfect weather, no pollution, no sickness, streets of gold. And then at the bottom it said, won't it be nice? Can you think of anything missing from that description of heaven? It's not that any one thing on that poster was necessarily wrong in and of itself, but the thing that made the entire poster as a whole tragically wrong was the fact that it failed to mention the distinctive feature that makes heaven, heaven. Did you catch what, rather, who was missing from that list? On a poster listing the blessings of heaven, the things that will make it so nice, there was no mention of God. And when you take inventory of your hopes and your dreams for the future, probably the most important question you can ask yourself is, is God there? Is God there? The best possible future is the one in which God himself dwells with man on earth. And the good news that's revealed to the world in Exodus 25 through 31 is that God fully intends to dwell with us forever. And even better than that, the, the holy God of heaven has himself made a way. 
he has made a way for sinful humans to enjoy him forever. So if you caught that, I'm preaching this morning seven chapters of Exodus. So buckle up. Exodus 25 through 31, I'm not going to make you stand as I read all seven chapters. That would probably take 45 to 50 minutes, but I do want to invite you to stand as I read two excerpts. I'm going to read from chapter 25 and from chapter 29, and we stand out of our reverence for God and his word, which he has spoken for our edification and instruction. This is the very word of the Lord. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 29 and read verses 38 through 46. Love to hear pages turning. I'll give you a second to get there. Exodus 29, 38 through 46. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we love your word. And we are so grateful that you have spoken to us. And that in your wisdom, your word to us includes detailed record of specific instructions for the construction of a tabernacle, a sanctuary, a place where you would dwell with your people. And we trust in faith that this word is for us today as well, that you mean to reveal yourself and your purpose, your intention, your grace, and your goodness to us in this. And so we pray that as we give our attention to the details of the tabernacle, that you would cause our longing for you and for your presence and for that day when we will finally see your face. Pray that you would cause that longing to be deepened and intensified for your glory and for our joy. Amen. You may be seated. If you have ever sat down and read through these chapters in Exodus, 
trying to track along with all of these specific details about the tabernacle. You've probably had that experience where you quickly get a little bit lost, a little bit confused, a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit bogged down trying to remember all of the specifics. So, okay, the ark is two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half tall. Just, okay, don't forget that. And then there, there are 20 frames on the south side and 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames. There are two bases under each frame. Are you getting all this? And, and make room, leave room in your mind because there, there's a lot more to come. There are just so many specific details in this text. And so we're going to follow the route of the author of Hebrews, who after cataloging some of the items that were present in the tabernacle and briefly going through the layout of the tabernacle in Hebrews 9.5, the author there writes, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's helpful to me. Not that the details aren't important or edifying. We'll talk about some of them. But I want to make sure that we see the forest, without getting lost in the trees. And the place to start is to begin with God's own purpose in all of this, in all the details of the tabernacle. They all point to this. They all signify this. Never lose sight of God's overarching purpose. Holding God's purpose in mind as you read about the tabernacle is what makes sense of those details. Exodus 25, verse 8, as we just read, God gives a single command That command is unpacked then in these subsequent seven chapters, and along with that command, God gives his own purpose, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's the whole purpose for everything else that follows, that I may dwell in their midst. The command is construct a sanctuary. That means a place that is set apart, a place that is holy, a place that is unlike any other place in your camp. And the purpose of that place is God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And this sanctuary is called by two different names as we read through these seven chapters. In the first few, Exodus 25 through 27, it's called in English, the tabernacle. That tradition comes down to us from the Latin translation, the Latin word tabernaculum. It just means tent. We often refer to this as a tent. But the Hebrew word actually, more specifically, doesn't just refer to a tent, but it means dwelling place. That is, the Hebrew word emphasizes not the kind of structure that, you know, this is a temporary thing that you pitch, you set up, you know, a tent versus a permanent home. No, the, the Hebrew word emphasizes the purpose of this place. It is a place for dwelling in. It's called the dwelling place because the tabernacle is God's dwelling place on earth. God says again in chapter 29, as I read, verses 45 through 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's the theme of the whole book of Exodus. That's what we subtitled this sermon series. You shall know that I am the Lord. And here he says, they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt Why? So that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God has been revealing himself as the great I am. This is who he is, and here is his purpose. This passage is the heart of the entire text. In fact, you can make the argument, this is the theme of the whole Bible that carries through to the last chapter of Scripture. God rescued and redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai to himself. There he establishes a covenant with them but dwelling 
with his people. Dwelling in their midst, being near to them, was the entire reason that God rescued and redeemed them. We know from Numbers 2 that the tabernacle occupied the very center of the Israelite camp. All the 12 tribes were arranged around it, three on each side. Numbers 2 verse 2 says, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. God means to take up occupancy in the very center of the Israelite camp. Over a dozen times in this passage, the phrase is used, before the Lord. Before the Lord, before the Lord. Everything that happens in the tabernacle happens before the Lord. And so the reason for the very specific, very detailed instructions is that preparations must be made in order for God to reside right in the midst of his people. So this sanctuary is first called the tabernacle, more accurately, the dwelling place. But then at the end of chapter 27 and on through chapter 31, there's a shift. The the tent is no longer referred to as the tabernacle or the dwelling place. It's now called the tent of meeting. The the focus shifts from the mere fact of God's presence, he's going to dwell there, to God's relational purpose. The tent of meeting. Residents in an apartment complex may all dwell in the same place, but that's no guarantee of relationship, community, fellowship. In a marriage that's gone cold, a husband and wife might even live under the same roof and share the same bed and yet be completely out of fellowship. God aims at something more than just dwelling there. He means to meet with his people. Exodus 25, verse 22 God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God's purpose, to make sense of all the details, is that he means to dwell with them in order to commune with them. So now consider God's pattern. We know from this text that the tabernacle was constructed based on plans and patterns that were revealed to Moses up on the mountain. Exodus 25, 9, God says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And that instruction is repeated again in 25:40 and 26:30 and 27:8. God is repeatedly bringing Moses back to do it exactly the way that I show you. The pattern. Follow the plan. While the details may not make the most exciting reading, they are vitally important. They indicate that God himself is the one who is here making a way. He is making it possible for his holy presence to come and dwell in the midst of his sinful people that he has rescued and redeemed for himself. Think about it like this. At Mount Sinai, God reveals his awesome presence on the top of the mountain. Think of Sinai like a roaring bonfire. That's how chapter 24, right before we get into all these tabernacle details, chapter 24 ended like this with these words in verses 16 and 17. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And God wants to bring that presence down off the top of the mountain right into the middle 
of the camp. So you know how this works. Burning a fire outside is relatively easy, right? As long as you have clearance overhead and around the fire, let it roar. But bringing that same fire into your living room to provide heat and warmth, that takes a lot more effort, doesn't it? Outside, you just need some clearance, but inside your home, you need the special construction of a fireplace with a chimney, with a hearth so that sparks that fly out don't start the living room on fire. All kinds of precautions so the smoke actually goes out and not into the home to suffocate and kill everybody. That's what the tabernacle is. These are instructions for building the place where God would manifest his presence right in their midst, and it required great care and attention to detail. Otherwise, there would be death. Since God saw fit to reveal these exact details and preserve them for us, I think it's worth taking a moment just to give a brief description of the physical layout of the tabernacle. The the tabernacle consisted of three main areas. There was the outer courtyard, and then inside that there was a tent. And that tent itself was divided into two sections that we call the holy place and the most holy place. The court outside was surrounded by a fence that was about seven and a half feet high. And that whole courtyard complex would have taken up, as Americans, you get this, right? Like a quarter of a football field, roughly. So not a huge area for the whole tabernacle complex. To the east was a gate. The gate was about 10 yards wide. That's like a first down, okay? And there was a screen that covered that gate. And when you enter the courtyard, the very first item that you would see was this huge bronze altar where sacrifices would be offered to God. And after the bronze altar, there was a bronze basin full of water where the priests would ceremonially wash to be cleansed before they would go inside of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the tent itself. That was a tent about 15 feet wide by 45 feet long, 15 feet tall, and it was covered by four layers of fabric and animal skins. Even these details are significant, that the innermost layer was fine linen, embroidered and dyed, the most expensive, made from linen, which came from plant products. And above that was wool. And above that, there were a couple layers of skins from dead animals to protect from the outside. You get inside the tent, and it's divided into two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. And the holy place was about two times bigger than the most holy place. In that first section, the holy place, if you turn to your left, along the the south wall was the golden lampstand. That lampstand was hammered out of one talent of solid gold. A talent is about 75 pounds. Imagine that lampstand. To the north was a table overlaid with gold for the bread of the presence, gold containers for drink offerings. And the priests would eat that bread every Sabbath and then replace it The bread and the wine on a table inside the holy place indicated this was a place for fellowship, for communion with God. And then at the west end, in front of a blue and purple and scarlet curtain, colors that represent royalty and divinity, curtain with cherubim skillfully worked into it, there was a golden altar where Aaron would burn incense every morning and every evening. 
And beyond that veil was the most holy place, the holy of holies. The holy of holies was a perfect cube. It was 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, 15 feet tall, roughly the dimensions of the average master bedroom in America. The only object inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a a wooden box completely covered in gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant because it contained the tablets of the covenant that God had given to Moses on the mountain. The only person permitted to enter that area was the high priest. And he was only allowed to go in there one time every year on the Day of Atonement. So what do all these details mean? The, The pattern revealed to Moses. Well, one of the clues comes from the numerous ways that the tabernacle resembles and reflects the Garden of Eden. This indicates that what God is doing in revealing to Moses a pattern for the tabernacle is restoring his original purpose in creation to dwell with man on earth, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. For one thing, the tabernacle instructions are delivered here in Exodus in seven speeches. Each one begins the Lord said to Moses. And the seventh of those speeches is about the Sabbath, which corresponds to the seventh day of creation. So there's this clue that the construction of the tabernacle is like a new creation moment. This is echoing the seven days of creation, culminating in rest in the presence of God. God is creating something new again. He's recovering his purpose to dwell with his people. Both the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle were entered from the east. After the fall in Genesis 3.24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And just like the east-facing entrance to Eden, the east-facing tabernacle was guarded by cherubim. Cherubim are winged creatures. They're often depicted as body of a lion, face of a man, these big wings. There were cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant with their wings stretching out, covering the Ark. There were cherubim embroidered onto that curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place. Just like Eden, the cherubim are guarding the way to the place where the presence of God dwells. Exodus specifies 12 gemstones that were to be incorporated into the high priest's breast piece. The prophet Ezekiel names most of those gemstones, and says they were present in the garden of God. There are intentional echoes here from Eden. There there was a golden lampstand hammered out of pure gold. The purpose of the lampstand in Exodus 25-37 was to give light, which is the same phrase used in Genesis 1 when God hung the lights in the heavens to give light upon the earth. The lampstand was to be fashioned like a blossoming almond tree, reminiscent of the tree of life in the garden. In so many ways, the tabernacle is a reminder of Eden where God dwelt with man. Commenting on the pattern for the tabernacle shown to Moses, the New Testament author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 8, 5, they, that is the earthly priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In Hebrews 9, the earthly tabernacle and its furnishings and vessels are called copies of the heavenly things and copies of the true things in Hebrews 9, 24. That's what the earthly tabernacle was. It was an echo of Eden. It was a copy and a shadow of God's heavenly dwelling place. It was a symbol 
pointing to something far greater than gold and silver and bronze or fine twined linen. Think of the way that an architect might draw up plans and then make a 3D scale model out of different materials than the real thing is going to be made out of. The architect might use you know, balsa wood and styrofoam to build a 3D model, but the model is pointing to something that's going to be made out of stone and steel, far more glorious. That's what the pattern means. It's pointing us to heavenly realities. Third, consider God's provision in all of this. Not only did God purpose to dwell with his people, not only did he reveal this pattern that they were to carefully follow to construct the tabernacle, God also graciously provided everything necessary for his people in order for his purpose to be fulfilled. The entire tabernacle section of Exodus begins with this call for a contribution. Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So here's a problem. Where in the world does a desert-dwelling, nomadic people made up of former slaves who own nothing, where do they come up with all the extravagant materials necessary to build a dwelling place for the living God? Back in Exodus 12, if you recall, the night of the Exodus, it says the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Just marvel at the kindness of God to provide everything that would be needed long before it was needed. That's the kind of God you serve who knows in advance all that you will need, and he will provide it in his time. And then he gives his people the blessing, the joy of participating in giving, contributing to the construction of the tabernacle. But the construction of the tabernacle presented another glaring need. If, if you're a DIYer, you know any fool can walk into Home Depot with a credit card and get all the supplies they need. That is no guarantee of success, right? Something more than the materials are needed. There is some skill, some expert skill really needed for the construction of this tabernacle. And Exodus 31, 1 through 6 says this. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God always provides what's needed in order to fulfill what he has commanded. But as you know, there's a difference between a house and a home, isn't there? A house is just an empty structure. A home is that same structure filled with life and love. And in order for God to dwell with his people, something more was needed than the materials and the skill. The, the finest finishes cannot guarantee that the occupants of a home are in fellowship. Just visit any Hollywood mansion. So consider the scene in Exodus 33, verse 7. This is after the golden calf debacle. It says, 
Here, here was the practice. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. Notice the emphasis on the location. Moses would meet with God. He would go into the tent. But where was the tent located? Far off from the camp. And he had called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was, in case you missed it, outside the camp. And that differs dramatically from the description of the tabernacle in Exodus 25.8 when God says he's going to dwell in the midst of, in the middle of his people. And so in addition to all the material and all the skilled labor, God provided graciously priests as mediators and a sacrificial system and all those details are in Exodus 28 and 29. Priests to serve as representatives of the people before God and representing God before the people and a sacrificial system by which atonement could be made for sin. That was the purpose according to Exodus 29, 33, which is the first time that word atonement is used in the Old Testament in relation to God. J.I. Packer gives this helpful definition of atonement. He writes, atonement means making amends, blotting out the offense, giving satisfaction for wrong done, and thus reconciling to oneself the alienated other and restoring the disrupted relationship. That's my favorite definition. Everything necessary to make things right so that the relationship can be restored. Atonement is necessary because of sin. Sin is what must be atoned for. That's what Moses says after the golden calf incident. He says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Sin has to be covered, has to be paid for. This is the whole reason Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, because of their sin. It's sin that puts man out of fellowship with God. And so atonement must be made before God can occupy this dwelling place. God's instructions for the tabernacle had only included the blueprints and the materials list, but no provision for sin, then one of two things would have resulted. Either that tent would have sat there vacant or God's holy presence in the camp would have consumed the people. This is the most important part. Only after atonement was made could God dwell in the midst of his people. So as you read through these seven chapters, you just get this overwhelming picture of God doing it all, making a way, providing everything, the purpose, the pattern, the materials, the workers, the sacrifices, everything about the tabernacle is telling us God desires to dwell with his people and God makes a way to dwell with his people. As we close, consider the perfect. As Greg prayed from this text that speaks of the perfect, when the perfect comes. We know that all of this is true. God's desire to dwell with his people because he has given us something better than the tabernacle. Hebrews 8 is just this incredibly rich, inspired text that is a commentary on the tabernacle. And the author there writes, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. So the earthly tabernacle was made out of earthly materials, 
made by human hands, but there is, according to Hebrews 8, a true tent set up by God himself. And because that tent is superior to this tent, the high priest who ministers in that tent is superior to all the priests who ministered in this tent. And Jesus is that high priest. Then the author of Hebrews goes on to describe the layout of the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle. And he writes in chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered, jumping down to verse 24, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is your high priest, your savior, your access to the presence of God. Are you trusting him? When you think about your dream world, your dream future, is God there? Will you have the hope of dwelling with God forever? If you are trusting in Christ Jesus, confessing your sins, forsaking them, and turning to Christ in faith, then this is the reality for you. Christ has secured your eternal redemption and guaranteed that you will dwell with God forever when his presence fills the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done to reveal to us tangible picture that points to your purpose of dwelling with your people and then helps us understand and gives us language for thinking about making sense of what Jesus did when he came as a high priest of the greater things that have come. When he entered into the perfect tent to represent us and make atonement for our sins so that we might dwell with you forever. Thank you, God. We pray that you would fill this world with the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ through your gospel. And would you deepen and intensify our longing for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.